Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, Andrew Conti, author of Death of the Daily News. Andrew Conti is the author of Death of the Daily News, How Citizen Gatekeepers Can Save Local Journalism. Now, the Daily News that uh, you reference in your title is the McKeesport Daily News. How did you discover the story of that newspaper? So I used to be a reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and I got concerned about the future of local journalism and we started the Center for Media Innovation. It's a uh, laboratory based at Point Park University. And the first summer that I started, this was 2016, I ended up getting two phone calls from local residents saying, we no longer have a reporter. I said, what do you mean you don't have a reporter? And they said, well, we used to have a, a reporter from either a local newspaper or the Post-Gazette or the Tribune Review, and now nobody comes to our meetings any longer. And I realized there was this problem. You know, they were just the news outlets were shrinking and going out of business. And McKeesport was a classic place where they'd had a newspaper for 131 years. And suddenly, you know, residents woke up one morning and there was no longer the daily news there. Well, tell us a little bit about McKeesport. Uh, where is it in Pennsylvania and uh, what was its economic base? Yep, so McKeesport is actually very close to Pittsburgh by mileage. It's only about 15 miles away from Pittsburgh, but because of the, the hills and valleys and rivers we have here, there's no easy way to get there. And it takes about 30 to 40 minutes at least uh, to get to McKeesport from the city of Pittsburgh. And it's very much uh, the center of its own community. It's the, the heart of the Monongahela, Monongahela River Valley, uh, which was the big industrial area uh, for Pittsburgh. When people talk about Pittsburgh being the steel city, that's one of the critical places that they talk about. And so McKeesport was booming uh, up until the 1980s. It, it was the, the kind of place that said another confluence of the Monongahela River and the Yakagani River. And people thought, well, this will be even bigger than Pittsburgh. We're going to be, you know, huge. And uh, the city's nickname is Tube City because they made steel pipe there. And uh, it had, it was the headquarters for G.C. Murphy's. All the G.C. Murphy department stores in, in the country were based out of McKeesport. Uh, the, the city itself had multiple department stores, and it, it was a, a booming place. And then, of course, when the 1980s came and the steel industry collapsed, uh, that was one of the places that suffered. And the newspaper there hung on for a long time uh, until uh, 2016, and that's when uh, the Daily News closed. Well, talk a little bit about the Daily News itself. When, when was it founded and who founded it? Yes, yeah, so it was, it was 131 years ago, and it was uh, two guys who had been working for uh, another newspaper, and they decided they wanted to start their own newspaper. And so uh, they founded it there in McKeesport, and they started telling stories. And uh, the Daily News building sits right at the, the center of the, the city. It was the first building in McKeesport to have air conditioning. So it was sort of one of those uh, points of, of real civic pride. Uh, right outside the front doors, there's a statue to John Kennedy. Uh, he spoke there. Uh, just days before the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then uh, when he was assassinated, uh, this was, it's believed that's one of the, it is the first uh, Kennedy statue entity anywhere in the world. And uh, there's another unique twist that I opened the book with, uh, is the story about how 
uh, Kennedy and Richard Nixon were both first-term members of Congress in uh, 1946, and they uh, they rode the train up to McKeesport, and they debated the uh, uh, Taft Labor Bill, and uh, became the, the Taft-Hartley Labor Bill. And it's one of those quirks of history where you had two future presidents uh, spend the whole day together on the train. Uh, they debated, and it was really interesting because the, the newspapers had all this coverage of it. And then uh, they stopped by the, the local diner and had coffee and sandwiches. And then when the train came, they, they got on and rode back to D.C. And uh, Nixon said years later that the, the two of them stayed up all night long uh, debating the, the Cold War and what to do about it. And, you know, he, he laughed saying uh, neither one of us had any idea that that would be, you know, debating for president years later and that we both would end up being president. Now, one of the terms you use in the book is news desert, and you, you talk about uh, news deserts being an emerging crisis. Uh, what are news deserts? So it's, it's taken from the, the term for a food desert, which might be more familiar to people, places where there's no access to, to local fresh food, you know, where you can't go to a grocery store. And we adapted it for news. Um, I wasn't the first person to do it. Uh, I, I actually uh, go through in the book explaining where the term comes from. started out in Chicago. Uh, but the idea is that there are increasingly communities across the United States that no longer have access to local news. So uh, either the, they had a newspaper and the, the newspaper closed, or perhaps the, the local newspaper pulled back its coverage area, and so the community falls outside of that coverage area. And they're popping up all across the United States. There are a couple of organizations that are tracking them. Probably the best known at this point is uh, Northwestern University. They just came out with a study uh, looking at how these news deserts are growing everywhere. Uh, but my book's the first one to really dive into what happens in a news desert after the newspaper closes. And so that's what I tried to, to do uniquely with it. Um, just as an anecdote, we have a, a community here, another one, uh, it's called uh, Swickley Township. It's, it's not the, there's a, a very famous Swickley just outside of Pittsburgh that's, uh, you know, this Tony, uh, very high-end suburban community. Uh, that's not that Swickley, there's another Swickley. Uh, that's in Westmoreland County, and it's, it's on the opposite side of Pittsburgh. And the fact is they used to have two newspapers. They had a, a local reporter, a local newspaper that would cover it, and then they also had the Tribune Review would show up, and now uh, nobody covers the community any longer. And so that's a perfect example of a place that's a, a news desert. Now, is there something that you discover about the role of a community newspaper after it shuts down? For example, once the Daily News shuts down, did the people in the community realize that maybe something was missing that they had taken for granted before? Well, that's the thing that, that's really interesting about local news is that we, we don't really notice, we don't notice it until it's gone. And so in McKeesport, that was absolutely the case, that people had lived with the daily news for generations. And it was something that their families always did. They just took the newspaper and suddenly it was gone. And at first, people really didn't, they weren't sure what to make of it. I, I, some of the public officials actually celebrated this, saying, well, you know, now we won't have the newspaper asking us difficult questions any longer. They won't be, uh, you know, trying to, to pin us down on how we're spending money or, or what streets we're paving first. And then they quickly realized that for every negative story, there were, you know, lots of other positive stories that were sharing stories about the community, that were helping the public officials get out information that they wanted to other people. And so suddenly that's gone, and it left the residents there uh, really trying to figure out how to figure out what's going on around them. Now, one of the terms that is often used in referencing newspapers is newspaper of record. And uh, so the McKeesport Daily News would have had things like obituaries and wedding notices and things like that. How important is that for building community? 
It's so funny you don't think about obituaries. You know, I, at least I didn't. I, I, it wasn't until I was talking with a, a group of senior citizens, and we were in a, uh, uh, a high-rise where they live, and started talking to them about what they missed about the newspaper. And they said, we don't, we don't know that our friends have died until sometimes weeks, weeks later we find out that somebody's died, and, uh, and because there's no, not a record of it. Now, there is a, an online obituary now that exists there, um, but a lot of these seniors were having difficulty accessing the Internet. Um, not everyone has access to a smartphone there or a, a computer, and so it's hard for people to find those things online. That, that's what's so unique about a newspaper is that it's relatively inexpensive and it's easily accessible, and people throughout the community can just pick it up and really find out what's going on. The other thing that we discovered were people moving into the community, that uh, McKeesport has a, a very transient population now to the point where um, half the people who uh, the students who start out the school year in the district end up somewhere else or uh, have come in some point during the school year, so they're not there for the whole school year. And previously, it was easy for people to come into the community and start reading the newspaper and discover what was happening. And now you have to come in and try to figure out, well, who do I talk to? Where do I go? Where do I look online to try to figure out what's happening in the community? Now, one of the figures you mentioned in the book is Marshall McLuhan. Who is he and what ideas of his that, that did you think were relevant to this story? Yes, so Marshall was one of these people who was really famous in the 1970s. You know, this uh, media uh, researcher who, you know, how does a media researcher become famous? No, really, how does a media researcher, you know, no. Um, in his case, he, he became famous with saying these off-the-wall things like the, the medium is the message and uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, General Electric Company, because they sell electricity, that they're actually a communications company. And then, you know, to find out, years later that you know General Electric ended up owning NBC and being a big player, or um, his other one was the um, AT&T, that they were a communications company, and that was before they ended up you know, being one of the biggest communication companies in the, the country. And so Marshall was just really at the cutting edge of this whole idea that we need to rethink uh, not just how we talk to each other, not just what we say to each other, but how we say it. Um, he was talking mainly about television, you know, talking about how uh, television was reshaping our culture because people were no longer uh, congregating, they weren't sitting outside on their front porch, instead they were sitting inside watching television. And it was changing the way uh, not just people learned about things, but it was changing the whole culture. And then if you look at the internet, the internet's just like TV on steroids, right? It, it takes it to a whole nother level. And so there were all these things that he was predicting that ended up uh, being really salient for when you're talking about how the internet's coming along. And not only is it changing the way we we, uh, we communicate, but it's also having these side effects like forcing newspapers out of business. Well, let's talk about uh, how the newspapers fared as the internet comes along. I mean, what was the big change? Uh, newspapers usually make money from advertising. How did it affect advertising? So the internet changed everything for newspapers, and it changed it in ways that a lot of journalists didn't see coming. Uh, you know, at first there was this excitement, well, I can put my stories on the internet and the, everybody will be able to see them and this will be great. And a lot of news outlets rushed to put all their information online for free, not even charging people anything for it. So previously where you had to buy a newspaper, now you could just go on the internet and read a story and not pay for it. And that was one part of the model. So people stopped buying the print newspaper. If I can just look at the newspaper on my phone or on the internet, then I don't need to buy the printed newspaper. And then that shook up the whole advertising model as well, right? Because if people aren't looking at newspapers for their information, 
then advertisers aren't willing to put their money into you know, advertisements for the newspaper because people aren't looking at it there. But beyond that, it was even uh, more complicated because you could say, well, ad but advertisers moved online, so not a big deal, right? No, the reality is that uh, the pricing structure is completely different. So that if, you, if you're a big department store, say uh, Macy's buys a, a full-page ad in a newspaper on Sunday, uh, they figure that everyone who takes the newspaper plus an additional person is going to look at that ad. So maybe your circulation is 100,000, so 150,000 people saw my ad. Great. The newspaper can charge for that and charge a pretty big price for it, right? Because that's a lot of people. And, you know, in a, a mid-sized city, if 150,000 people are looking at your ad, that's a pretty big deal. But when the Internet came along, the whole structure changed so that now you could see actually how many people were looking at each specific ad. And so advertisers said, well, I'm not going to pay you for 150,000 people if only 1,000 people have looked at that one story that had my ad on it. And so uh, advertisers started paying news outlets a lot less. And the online structure is such that um, they're paying fractions of a penny for every time someone clicks on a story. And so news outlets, even the ones who have successfully moved to a digital format, um, like here in Pittsburgh, the, the Post-Gazette has gone from printing every day to now the, the Post-Gazette only comes out two days a week on Thursdays and Sundays. So they're in the midst of a very successful move to digital, but the the, the money doesn't follow along. And that's why they continue to publish on Thursdays and Sundays, because those are the big advertising days. Now, you say in the book that uh, digital advertising continues to grow, topping $100 billion for the first time in 2018. But much of that money goes into a few pockets, and you use as an example of Facebook. So uh, people are making money from digital ad advertising, just not necessarily news organizations. No, that's right. Um, Facebook and YouTube and, and um Google, the, the big internet companies are the ones that are making the money off of all the content that's being created. And so it's this real uh, mixed up situation we've got here where the people who are creating the content are getting, aren't getting paid for all the eyeballs that look at it. So um, a story might get shared on Facebook and a lot of people will see it and Facebook will run an ad next to it and Facebook makes all the revenue while where the person who originally wrote the story isn't getting any revenue at all from Facebook, except that if the person clicks through to the story, maybe they're getting a, a fraction of a penny for each person that clicks, clicks through to actually read the story. So was there a point where the daily news stopped being profitable and perhaps it was owned by Richard Scaife at one point, so was he making up the difference? How did, how did the financial side of that work? Yes, so for many years the Mansfield family owned the, the daily news and that's a, a big, was a big political family in McKeesport. Um, and, and as they, uh, they owned it for many years and then they started losing money on it. And so they sold it to a, a local company that bought it and said, well, we can, if we package the, the daily news together with other local newspapers, then we'll be able to uh, make it profitable. And that only lasted a few years. And it looked like the daily news was going to go out of business. Then, uh, this was about five or six years before it eventually did go out of business. Uh, and that's when uh, Richard Scaife, who owned the, the Tribune Review, originally in Greensburg, and then he'd opened the, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, uh, stepped in and said, well, I'll, I'll buy the newspaper. And part of it was that he loved newspapers, and so he wanted to, to be a, you know, he loved the idea of being a, a publisher in, in the town of McKeesport. Um, the other part was that it, the, the circulation numbers for the, the McKeesport newspaper, even though they weren't terrific, they were enough to, to uh, push up the Tribune Review's overall circulation numbers. The Trib had a... I was a reporter for the Trib for 15 years, so I, I sort of had a front row seat for all this. And uh, I remember early on, um, the the uh, 
the CEO or publisher of the, the newspaper um, told Mr. Scaife and said, you know, we, we're going to have the number one circulation newspaper in Pittsburgh. And one of the ways they did that was by uh, combining circulations of community newspapers like that that helped lift the overall circulation to the point where uh, the Trib Total Media was the, the highest circulation news outlet in, in Western Pennsylvania for a number of years before uh, Dick Scaife died in 2014. Now, is there a, a kind of a spiraling relationship between, you know, the revenues are lower, so there's less money to invest in the reporting, which is fewer stories in a paper, which then leads to perhaps less readership? How does that work, and how did that work for the daily news? Yeah, it's definitely true that the, the less money that comes into news outlets means less money for reporting. So you get the situation where uh, news outlets are are struggling to tell original stories. They've got... Uh, even the news outlets that survive, uh, oftentimes they're they're talked about as ghost newspapers because the newspaper is still there. You know, you still, if you're a, a subscriber, you still get a printed newspaper delivered to your house, however many days they print it. Um, but there are far fewer reporters working at the newspaper, and so you start to notice over time the newspaper is getting thinner and thinner. If you go back, uh, you compare the Sunday newspaper in, a, in an average city that now versus 20 years ago, it's a fraction of the size that it, it was. And... As a consequence of that, there are also you know fewer reporters. Thousands of reporters have lost their jobs over the the last uh, 15 years. Really, since uh, 2007 was uh, a big tipping point when uh, smartphones started coming out and the Great Recession hit. That became a, a tipping point, and where the rest of the economy came back, newspapers really struggled and, and continue to struggle and, and continue to lose uh, reporters. And so. You're seeing less original reporting in your, your newspaper, and so then subscribers are like, well, I'm not going to pay for it because I'm not getting what I used to get. And then that leads to a situation, you know, and then advertisers say, well, there are fewer people looking at your newspaper, so we're not going to put our money in. And then that leads to fewer reporters, and yes, it becomes a, a downward cycle. One that, that's really the focus of the, the Center for Media Innovation, the place that I, I run. We're trying to reverse that cycle and, and find innovative ways to not only deliver the news, but also do it in financially sustainable ways. Can you talk more about the 2008 recession and, and just give us a sense of the scale of the, you know, the number of newspapers that were lost as a result of that? Yeah, it's, it's thousands of newspapers. I mean, hundreds of newspapers and uh, thousands of journalists have, have lost their jobs since then. And it was the kind of thing where the news industry was already struggling. Uh, when I came out of graduate school in the, the late 1990s, a lot of the professors even then were saying, well, you know, if you're going to, to print newspapers, you've got to really think about what you're doing for your career because, you know, the Internet's coming along. And I actually had a class where they taught us, you know, like, here's the Internet and, you know, here's how you create a web page. I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty nifty. That's pretty cool. Um, and I went first to work for a, a newspaper in Florida because at that point, Florida was a place that was robust for newspapers. Um, the, the community that I, I worked in in Stewart, Florida, um, we had something like, they used to show us, Scripps Howard owned the newspaper, and it was like 90% of the homes took the newspaper because there were a lot of older residents, and they just took the newspaper, and they wanted to know what was going on in their community. And things gradually uh, declined through uh, the following years and, and decades until, uh, you know, following decade, really, until 2007. Uh, and that's when uh, the Apple iPhone comes out and the Great Recession hits, and suddenly... Uh, newspapers that have been just kind of holding on start to really struggle. And the, the big news outlets at that point start to uh, downsize. And so that's the, the beginning of what we, we start to see with uh, newspapers starting to close. And then uh, what's happened since then is that a lot of uh, 
hedge funds and large corporations have stepped in to say, well, um, you know, maybe a, a, a family had owned the newspaper in this community and the family can no longer keep it going, so a large investment company will come in and say, well, we'll buy the newspaper, we'll add it to our portfolio. And what they do is they strip it of, um, they start stripping it of resources. So they, they lay off reporters, so there are fewer reporters there. And then they start looking at, well, what are the things that um, we can sell from this? So maybe the newspaper owned its building. Well, can we sell the building and move the newspaper into something smaller? And they start taking all the assets away and just really ring it down to the point where, um, you know, it's, it's no longer the newspaper that it was before, and that's when it becomes, again, on the brink of actually closing at that point. And what we're seeing now is that um, daily newspapers are turning into weekly newspapers, and then weekly newspapers are going out of business. Now, you mentioned the iPhone, and you know we all carry around with us these, these devices that are capable of photography and videography and you know publishing at a, at a small level. How has that decentralization uh, made up for or not uh, the loss of newspapers? Yeah, it's incredible. It's just this, we live in a super exciting time, right? Everyone who uh, carries around a, a smartphone or has a laptop computer can be a, a publisher or a a broadcaster. They used to say, you know, you don't start a, a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel. That was because you didn't want to start a fight with somebody who published a newspaper who could write story after story after story against you. And now in a situation where all of us have that ability, right? You can uh, take your phone and you can reach anyone in the world uh, with your message. And, and so that democratization of information has been terrific. It's opened up uh, stories that were, were never being told before. Uh, in, I mean, one, one example, we work with uh, people who have disabilities, and so uh, we work with a, a woman here in southwestern Pennsylvania who has Down syndrome, and she's uh, 50 years old, and she wanted to be a broadcaster, and so we worked with her to create a podcast, and she went out and did a story about, uh, she interviewed her parents about what it was like to raise a child with Down syndrome. That's incredible, right? I mean, previously she would have had to wait for somebody to take an interest in Down syndrome, uh, to take an interest in her story and hopefully convey her story accurately. And instead, the technology exists and it's so readily available and so easy to use that she was able to, to tell her own story. But what's come along with that is that we end up, everyone sharing their stories and it becomes a cacophony of voices. So everyone's talking and you can't really hear what anybody's saying. And while there's some really great information that gets, gets shared, there's also a lot of uh, false information uh, some that's just, you know, mistaken. People have the wrong information and they share it thinking that it's accurate. Uh, there's also deliberately false information where people putting out things that they know are not true, but they believe a certain thing and they want to, to convey that. Or maybe they're just trying to make money by uh, generating clicks. And then there's a lot of irrelevant information out there. And so what happens is all this information becomes so confusing that, especially in a small community that loses its journalists, uh, becomes overwhelming and becomes super confusing and people get frustrated and they start to feel that there's so much negative community negative information in their community and that uh, they really don't know what's going on any longer now another figure that you talk about in the book is david manning white a media researcher who you write about you say that in 1949 he set out to determine whether a single person in the mid-20th century could control the flow of information reaching thousands of citizens in a community uh, what did he find it's such an interesting study i think because uh, it's what's called the, the, the gatekeeper theory, this idea that prior to the internet, you had several people in each community who were, and I really mean like several people, just and usually white males, older white men, who were deciding for the entire community what information would get shared. So if you think about a, a small Midwestern town, which is where David Manning White was doing his research, 
he goes in and he talks with the, the night uh, wire editor. So uh, all this wire copy is coming in from the Associated Press and the UPI, and it was this person's job, one person's job, to go through all the available stories and decide which stories to put in the newspaper. And so whatever that person thought or favored, those are the kind of stories they passed along. Uh, so there was an example where there was a, the week that the research took place, uh, there was a big case in, involving, uh, a court case in Europe involving the Vatican, and this guy was a Protestant, he didn't really like the, the Catholic Church, and so he wouldn't run any stories about the Catholic Church. And, and so you can see how this one person, this one gatekeeper, is shaping information for thousands of people in that community. In a pre-internet pre age, the people of the community couldn't really decide, well, I'm going to go find information somewhere else. They might, you know, watch the national news or they, they might listen to a, a radio station local. Uh, or, you know, if they're fortunate, they might have another newspaper. But in many communities, they ended up with just one newspaper, one source of information. And this one person is making all these decisions. And so it's had this profound impact that now where when the internet comes along, suddenly people can go anywhere for information. So if you're in this community where the editor doesn't like the Vatican, well, it no longer matters because you can go directly to the, the Vatican's own news website and you can, you can hear from the Pope directly now. Uh, and so it's freed up information so that uh, people can turn anywhere and find out what's happening. Um, but again, that's created a situation where, um, you know, the local newspaper then isn't necessarily as valuable to, to people. So it's, it's definitely a two-sided coin. And while uh, we've been through a lot of pain, I do believe we're starting to come to a point where we're starting to see positive things to come out of it, and we're starting to feel, I started to feel, I'm starting to feel hopeful about the future again. How has the, the loss of some of these newspapers led people to realize uh, the value of the training that professional journalists have versus, say, uh, citizen journalists who don't have that training? That's yeah, so really interesting, this whole distinction between professional journalists and, and citizens, because you know, so I went to graduate school for um, journalism. I went to, to Columbia University and, and, and studied journalism, and it was really important to me, and I, I learned so many useful tools. Um, but now I see the value, too, of, of working with citizens and involving them in the process. And a lot of journalists don't necessarily believe that now because for journalists, we've always distinguished ourselves as uh, separate and apart from the general public. We're not, um, we don't have licensing. There's no, you know, there's no board that, you have to take a test and they say, all right, now you're a journalist. Really, anybody can be a journalist. Uh, but up to this point, it's been because professional journalists learned how to triage information, how to look at a situation to determine what's important, uh, what information is relevant, how do I verify that information, how do I ensure that, uh, you know, that if there's an opposing view, that I also include that. And those are the things that professionals have always done. But now you've got citizens coming in and they're trying to do journalism even if they don't call it journalism, oftentimes, uh, you know, people will talk to citizens and will say, you know, well, you're, you're already doing journalism, maybe on social media. And they're like, ah, I'm not a journalist. I'm just sharing whatever my thoughts are. Uh, but the reality is now we're in a situation where every, everything you tweet, everything that you post online is contributing to your community conversation. And oftentimes we act like this is ephemeral information that just goes off into the ether somewhere. But the reality is that uh, those are the conversations that make up our, our community conversation. And so if the information is bad, that pollutes the whole conversation and, and it no longer makes sense. Now, one of the things you mentioned in the book is the concept of social capital. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so social capital is, it's a really simple idea, but also kind of complex. It's this idea that the things that we 
put out into our community um, have value. So the fact that if we, every time we come together as a group, we, uh, we form connections and bonds with the other people in our community, and that over time, those connections start to have value, and so that we can use that uh, capital that we've built up to do things, so that if, uh, if you've already, if you're connected with uh, the people at your local school through the PTA, and you have a really strong PTA, and people show up, and you've got fundraisers, and they want to be part of it, or you have a, a fair, and all these people are coming together on a frequent basis, they start to form a, a community, and that community starts to develop capital so that then, uh, say something happens to the school where you have a, a natural disaster or a, a, there's a budget cut that comes along, you can use that capital to turn around to the community and say, well, our, our school is suffering because of whatever's happening, and there's a group of people who are willing to step forward and fill that gap because they, they, they're already connected, they're part of that community. Well, what's happened over the last 20 plus years, especially with the internet, um, something that uh, Robert Putnam pointed out in 2020, uh, to, in 2000 rather, with uh, his book Bowling Alone, was this idea that people were, because of the internet, starting to spend more time on their own, um, literally bowling by themselves instead of bowling in, in bowling leagues. And newspapers have historically played a huge role in, in knitting communities together in ways that we really had taken for granted for a long time. And it, it's just in the simple things of telling people hey, this fish fry is going on, or this festival is happening, or, um, you know, we talked before, these people died, these people were born, the things that are happening in the community, all the little things that happen in a community, the newspaper tells people about and knits them together and creates that social capital so that people are aware of what's happening in their community and they get involved and they're engaged with it. Uh, to the point where um, when Putnam was doing his research, people who were reading the newspaper were much more engaged in their community and had higher levels of social capital than the people who weren't reading a newspaper. Now we're in a situation where when the newspaper goes away, those connections start to erode because people no longer know about the events that are happening in their community. They don't know about the little things that add up to big things. Um, in McKeesport, the, the, uh, the, there's a professional, uh, semi-professional baseball league there, and it's called the, the Daily News League. And it gives you a sense of like, the newspaper is a part of the community. It's part of what uh, brings people together. And when that's gone, all these things start to fall apart. And so people there in, in McKeesport still call it daily, the Daily News League, but even though the newspaper is gone, but the name has stuck around. You tell the story of uh, Dye's Cornerstone Diner. How, how, does a, how does a diner fill in the gaps for the loss of a newspaper? Yeah, so when a newspaper goes away, people start trying to figure out what's happening all around them. And, it's, it, and it happens overnight in a place like McKeesport where the newspaper just disappears. And so the first thing people do is what they've always done. They start looking around and having conversations. They start looking for places where people gather. So that might be the, the church or a barber salon or a you know, hair salon, uh, any place where people can get, come together. And one of them was the, the diner, uh, Dye's Cornerstone Cafe. And it becomes a place where, because a lot of the local government officials go there, a lot of the public safety uh, people go there for lunch, people gather there for breakfast and lunch throughout the day. And so they share conversations. And the, the waitresses who work in the diner end up becoming conveyors of information because people are telling them things. And because they're telling them things, other people from the community are coming in and saying, hey, did you hear or what do you know about? And so they end up sharing out information. And uh, you know, in one embarrassing situation, uh, there's a word going around the community that this you know, fairly prominent person in the local community has died. 
and the waitresses have been telling people like, oh, it's, isn't it terrible? This guy died. And then the guy shows up in the, the restaurant. He hasn't died at all. And he starts to say, did you hear? And they're like, oh, we're so embarrassed. Um, but he, then he waves them off and says, well, I, I already heard at the butcher shop, they already told me that people are saying I died. And the, the fact is, you know, here I am. And, and so in that moment, they realized like, oh, we need to be really conscientious about the kinds of information we share. And that's the kind of revelation that I think more people need to go through, this idea that um, just because you're sharing something on the internet or sharing it over the, the back fence doesn't mean that it's not important. It's very important. So if it's important, then you've got to make sure that the facts are accurate, that what you're sharing is actually the truth. Because if you're sharing um, stuff that's not the truth, it creates this whole situation where the inform bad information gets mixed in with the good. Now you use, uh, you call it the diner sleuthing system. Uh, were, were the employees there, were they conscious that they were now making up for something that used to be done by the newspaper? Yes, that was the surprising thing that the, the people who worked, the, you know, it was mostly women and, and a few cooks in the, the back who were men, but um, they had a whole system. Yeah, they, they are very conscious of the fact that they are a main point of contact for information in the community. Um, such that, you know, people turn to them and say, you know, really, what's happening here? And they'll say, well, I don't know, we haven't heard anything, but let me see what I can find out. And so, um, you know, one of the waitresses will start texting somebody or call somebody and say, you know, what have you heard? And then another one will reach out to somebody else and they'll start sharing information and then people will come in and they start to corroborate the information. And it's only now because of the, this embarrassing incident that um, now they'll only share information if really somebody, you know, if multiple people are saying this is what's happened or, you know, the, a, a close person would come in and say, you know, oh yeah, that person died, that they really, um, they share the information now. But yeah, it's become a very, it's, um, it's an informal network, but it's become, a, a, you know, one of the main networks to the point where um, Di, the, the woman who uh, runs the, the cafe, she actually ran for school board and um, she didn't have to put up any signs or anything because people just knew her from the cafe. So after the newspaper shut down, did uh, some of the, the city newspapers, the Tribune Review or the Post-Gazette, did they pick up the slack at all? Yeah, so it's, it's difficult. Uh, like I said, McKeesport's a hard, of a, a hard area to get to. And so, um, no, not really. We haven't seen uh, a lot of other, the big newspapers haven't come in there. And that's one of the challenges. Um, because people also turn to television and they look to local TV and say, well, you know, I find out about my community by watching the local TV station. But the reality is that the TV station, uh, it, you know, they're trying to cover such a broad area. And it's also true for the, the two big, you know, metro newspapers, too, is that they're trying to cover so many things that they typically only show up in these little communities when something terrible happens. So, you know, if somebody gets murdered, they're there to tell the story. Or if uh, a few buildings catch on fire, they're there to tell the story. But they're not there on a regular basis to tell the stories of all the little good things happening in the community or covering the, the regular council meetings, the things that, that happen on a, a you know, weekly or monthly basis that are part of every community that are important, but they don't rise to the level of regional news unless there's some controversy. And so nobody's covering those things. And it, it increasingly, these communities fall through the gaps, even where you'd think, well, you know, this is a community that's not that far from Pittsburgh. Um, or like the, the Swickley community that I mentioned earlier, they're not that far from Pittsburgh, but they're not getting the coverage that they, they used to get, and they're not getting enough coverage for residents to really know what's happening. Now, you do talk about uh, Jason Togier, who started a website called Tube City Online. Uh, can you talk about what his efforts were, and uh, have other people attempted to take advantage of these technologies to try to fill the gap? Well, 
that is the interesting thing. Um, Jason was doing work in McKeesport even before um, the Daily News closed down. He, he had already recognized that, um, you know, information was struggling there, um, that the newspaper, even though it existed, didn't have the resources that it did. And so he was starting to fill the gaps there. And, and that's what we see increasingly in news desert situations, that people are stepping up in their own way and trying to fill the gaps uh, using, uh, typically they use social media. So um, in the, the case of Tube City Online, that's a whole uh, website that Jason's built out and he's got a, uh, an online radio station. He, he's really you know, trying to have impact that way. But in a lot of communities, it's just Facebook. And even in the, the Mon Valley where um, McKeesport is, there's something like 75 local Facebook groups where people are sharing information. And there are even a half dozen of them that are, are news related and one that's actually called the Daily News Facebook group. And they're there they, and they're straight up about it. They're like, we no longer have the Daily News, so share your information here. Um, but the challenge is that these are untrained journalists, right? They're just people trying to figure out what's going on. And so uh, in one of the, the cases I lay out in the book, uh, somebody says, uh, reports on Facebook that a police officer has been shot. That's that's serious news, right? And then a second person writes in and says, oh, yes, I confirmed it. I drove past the hospital, and there are a bunch of police cars there at the hospital. Any professional journalist would tell you that's not confirmation, right? That's just a coincidence. There are always police cars at the hospital. Um, but because these people, uh, you know, one piece of bad information gets compounded by another piece of bad information and then people start sharing it. And because of social media, it spreads so quickly and rapidly that it's hard to contain that to the point where an actual police officer jumped into the conversation and said, I, I'm a police officer. I would know if somebody's been shot. Nobody's been shot. This is a, 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 a fake story. And the people who had, were already on Facebook said, no, you don't know what you're talking about. We, we, we've heard the news and we've already uh, corroborated it. This is news. You don't know what you're talking about. And then finally, the, uh, the fire chief who I talked to for, for the book, he ends up talking to the, the Facebook group administrator and reaches the person offline and says, hey, can you just shut down this conversation because it's completely out of control? You know, I, I would know if somebody was shot. Nobody was shot. And so the administrator says, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, let me take it down. Uh, but up to that point, the administrator didn't really know. You know, this is not a, a trained journalist. They didn't know, was somebody shot? You know, should I call the police department? Should I find out what's happening? Should I go to the hospital to see, you know, what's really happening there? That's what a journalist would do. That's what a news organization would do. But citizens, they don't have the resources to do it, and they don't have the oftentimes the, the knowledge of what to do. Now, there was a newspaper called the Mon Valley Independent that opened a, uh, a branch in McKeesport. Uh, how, how has that gone? Yeah, it's been a great experiment. So there was a newspaper called the the Valley Independent um, that was owned by Trip Total Media. And the same time that the the McKeesport Daily News went out of business, the uh, Valley Independent also went out of business. And a group of citizens who had some resources, financial resources, said, "We don't accept this. We want to start our own newspaper." And so they started the Mon Valley Independent. Uh, it's for uh, for local investors, they started the newspaper, and they are now providing news between uh, over a stretch of the Mon Valley that goes about 20 miles from uh, the city of Monessen to uh, the city of McKeesport, and they try to cover all the news in between, um, which is great, and it's a, a terrific resource. But what's happened in the city of McKeesport are a couple things. One, uh, they have one reporter that covers the whole community, and so before, where you had the Daily News had lots of reporters, you know, even. Um, you know, in the, the, the decade before when I visited, they probably had uh, 10 reporters covering local government and, you know, the local community. In the end, they ended up with four reporters, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's still, you know, it's more than one reporter. And so um, the Mon Valley Independent has one reporter there. 
But beyond that, there's a psychological problem that people were so connected to the daily news that uh, it was part of their civic pride, that it was part of, it was embedded in the way they looked at the community. And so they've been very reluctant to embrace this new newspaper that um, has a very similar name to the, you know, the community newspaper in Manesson, which is 20 miles down the river. And so uh, people have been reluctant to embrace the newspaper. But uh, to the credit of the, the investors behind the Mon Valley Independent, they continue to put resources into it. They continue to uh, put out a newspaper. And, um, you know, frankly, in a place that doesn't have a lot of local news, they're providing an essential service. Uh, talk a little bit about how elected officials have responded to the loss of the newspaper. You mentioned in the book the mayor has an open door policy for residents, and one state senator has a discussion booth at a local restaurant. Yeah, so what's happened is that the public officials then, they have the resources to be leading purveyors of information in the community. So uh, at first they, you know, they were like, oh, this is great, the newspaper's gone. Then they realized, like, oh, no, the newspaper's gone. Now the newspaper's not telling the things that we want to tell. And so they tried to start filling the gap themselves. And because they have taxpayer dollars, they are able to, to do some things that ordinary people couldn't do. So um, there's a magazine that comes out, gets sent to every resident in the city of McKeesport. And so the city buys pages in that, that uh, magazine, the city and the school board. And so there's a page there where the mayor every, I think it comes out every month or quarterly, um, the mayor gets to share his information directly to the citizens, but it's written from his own perspective. And it's true for social media. All the public officials have uh, social media accounts and they share um, what's going on in the community, but again, from their own perspective. And like you said, they do in informal things where they just try to meet with people. And the, the, the thing is that in a place where there are no professional journalists, now the public officials, they end up, not only do they not have somebody holding them accountable any longer on behalf of the public, which a journalist would do, you know, asking them difficult questions about why are you doing these things. Not only is that gone, but at the same time, they're able to fill the gaps in some ways by putting out information that's not really vetted by anyone. It's just from their own perspective. And uh, the people that I talked to for the book were, were open about it. Um, the woman who works for the, the mayor's office, uh, she sits right outside his door. So everyone who comes to, to see the mayor basically has to come by and see her first. And uh, she used to be a reporter for the Daily News, and so she would do these stories. And now she writes stories for the mayor's office. And she said, you know, it's, it's a different type of writing. It's, it's not like having uh, a journalist there. And, and to uh, the credit, some of the other politicians there um, were very similar in their approach. They said, you know, look, we're, we put this information out because we're trying to fill the gap, but we realize it's not like having a journalist. You know, it's not like having somebody come at it from a, a neutral perspective. We're putting out the information from our own perspective. And um, to the point where, like, we, we're not going to call out other politicians if we see them doing something wrong, you know, and we're not going to uh, talk about government waste. Or One of the politicians says, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in the community that, you know, that nobody would ever find out about if there wasn't a newspaper. And so there's not a newspaper and people don't find out. So is there, uh, if, if businesses can't uh, be profitable producing the news, then what types of options are there to provide the type of public service that a newspaper would provide? So it's it largely, it's uh, social media. Social media has become uh, one of the big things that's filled the gap um, for better and for worse. So. Uh, on the positive side, it's great because now there are more perspectives than there ever were before. And so even within um, urban areas that have coverage, so the, the term news desert actually started in the city of Chicago in a, 
uh, a community where um, there was a, a, a black woman who was a columnist, and she said, you know, people write about the, the community, but they don't see my community, right? They're writing about the city of Chicago, but the white men who sit in the newsroom making decisions about what to cover don't see my perspective. They don't see the, the life of a black woman living in the city. It's being left out. Um, so what's happened now with the democratization of information is that if you feel like you're being left out, you can share the information yourself. You can put it out there. Um, that's great. It's a super powerful thing. Um, but then on the other hand, um, you know, the information that gets shared isn't always accurate. And so the inaccurate information uh, becomes a problem. I, I believe, and I make the case in the book, that um, we can turn the corner on this. That as people, we need to first start recognizing that the information we share has value. That when we post something on the fa on Facebook or uh, tweet something out, that that has value. It's important. It's not just something that disappears. Uh, and then once we recognize that, we need to spend more time learning how to do it well, right? With I, I use the the Peter Parker uh, principle, this idea that you know with Spider-Man that uh, with great power comes great responsibility. We've all been given this great power to publish and broadcast anything that we want. But with that should come the responsibility of saying, I'm going to make sure it's accurate. I'm going to share balanced information. I'm, I'm going to take the steps that a, a professional journalist might. Uh, are there nonprofit models that, that have been proven to work uh, in a situation like McKee Sports? So increasingly, there are nonprofit models that are shaped, uh, popping up all across the United States. Um, here in Pittsburgh, we've got, uh, of course, public radio and public television. Those are both nonprofit models for news. But then you've got Public Source as well, which is a local nonprofit news outlet. Um, and those are things that are happening all across the country where uh, foundations or wealthy individuals are stepping in and saying, we can't just let journalism disappear. We're going to set up a newsroom and we're going to support it with our own funds. Um, but increasingly, the places that are struggling economically, places like McKeesport, Nobody's setting up a nonprofit newsroom there. Uh, and, and certainly a place like the Sewickley Township that I mentioned, there's no nonprofit model there either because the, the resources aren't there to support local journalism. So the places that are already struggling financially, that need news the most, are the ones that are getting left behind and have the fewest resources for moving forward. Are there university-based models that, that could work to take advantage of the resources that universities have? Well, so with the, the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University, the, the place that I run, we're trying to, to come up with some of those uh, solutions. And so one of the things that we do is we have a community newsroom project. So in the city of McKeesport, we, uh, we work with uh, Martha Ryle, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. She worked for many years at the Post-Gazette. And uh, she now runs the newsroom there. And so she works with citizens to do um, live storytelling events where um, just ordinary people off the street come in and they were giving them writing skills, we're teaching them about how to interview other people, how to talk to their neighbors to figure out what's going on and to share those stories. Uh, she runs a photography collective where people go out and they, they create images of the community and they're sharing them. Um, and then she's teaching them podcasting and we work with young people. And so we've had some success with that. It's just a, uh, it is a, a long process and it's, it's a messy process, but I think it's one that is worthwhile and one that we need to, to scale across the region. And so uh, we started out in the city of McKeesport. We did that for two years and now we're, we're continuing in McKeesport, we've, but we've also added in some of the West End neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. Um, based around Stowe and McKees Rocks, 
just to make it super confusing, there's McKeesport and McKees Rocks. Um, but in that community, uh, we're working with a, another community newspaper, Gazette 2.0, which is a, another place where there was a newspaper called the Suburban Gazette. It had been around for 100 plus years, went out of business. And again, citizens said, we don't accept that. Uh, there was a developer there who owned several businesses, and he said, I'll, I'm, I'm going to give $50,000 toward this effort. And so he and a group of citizens started putting out their own newspaper, and uh, it's called Gazette 2.0. And um, they've, they've been doing it for about four years now. They're, they're just barely breaking even, but they're doing it, and they're keeping it going. Now, the Daily News had an Art Deco-style building in, in McKeesport, and you say that, uh, that the company that, that owned it sold it to the city for a dollar. How did that happen? Yeah, so Trib Total Media, which is uh, Richard Scaife, was this uh, billionaire who loved newspapers, and so he bought the uh, Greensburg Tribune Review in the 1970s. And then uh, Pittsburgh went through a newspaper strike in the 1990s, and at, when the two newspapers stopped publishing in Pittsburgh during the strike, uh, Mr. Scaife said, well, I'm going to start my own newspaper, and I'm going to start the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. And so he came in and, and started a newspaper here. And then eventually that turned into Trib Total Media, uh, which is the company that still exists, and it, it uh, prints a daily newspaper in uh, Tarentum, which is in uh, Allegheny County, sort of uh, northeast of the city, and in the, in the city of Greensburg, which is uh, also east of the city. They're both about um, 20 miles outside of Pittsburgh. And, and so Trib Total Media also owned the Daily News, and they owned the building there. And so when they decided, uh, when Mr. Scape died in 2014, he had been um, underwriting a lot of the losses of these newspapers. Pittsburgh was insulated for a long time because uh, you had Scaife with the, the Tribune Review, and he was saying, I, I don't care how much the newspaper loses, I'm going to, you know, I'll cover the losses. And then on the other side, you had the Block family, which owns the Post-Gazette, and they own uh, a cable network in Toledo and uh, channels up, uh, TV news channels up there, and they're using the profits from that to cover the losses of the, the newspaper at the Post-Gazette and the Toledo Blade, which they also own. And so you had this insulated situation where these two newspapers were losing money, but um, people were, because the families were making up the losses, we weren't really feeling the, the loss. And so Pittsburgh ended up being uh, one of the, the last cities of its size in America that still had two printed daily newspapers every day. The Tribune Review owned uh, the, the Daily News, and so when the Daily News uh, went out of business, they owned this building, and it's right in the center of town. It's, um, it, it is, it's, literally like the the main part of town if you if you've passed through McKeesport you can't miss the building it's a a three-story black and white art deco building um, it's got this great lobby uh, where you go and they've got a, a neon map in the wall where they uh, they show the different time zones of the United States where they've got uh, Los Angeles and Denver and Chicago and McKeesport of course is the the east coast city that they show and it's just it's the center of the city and so when uh, Trip Total Media closed they said to the city look we'll We'll, we're basically going to give you the building. And uh, to their credit, they had maintained the building. They had put a new roof on it, so it was in good shape. And the public officials in McKeesport said, this is great. We'll take the building. And uh, within uh, the, the, the trib, before they sold the building, they put uh, plywood across the, the first floor windows. And so you've got this building right in the center of, center of town that's covered with plywood, and it, you know, it looks abandoned. Um, but it didn't stay that way for very long. It was probably uh, less than two years. Public officials said, all right, we're going to take it over. Uh, they worked with Point Park University in the center that I run, the Center for Media Innovation, and that's where we put our, our community newsroom. Uh, you mentioned Jason Tozier, who has the Tube City Almanac and Tube City Online. He based his operation out of the building. So you, now you've got news going 
on in the building where uh, the Daily News used to be. The uh, district attorney opened a warrant office in the, the space, and there's a couple other businesses there to the point where, and the, the Boys and Girls Club is there. So the building has life again now, and uh, it's a credit to Trip Total Media that they were willing to turn the building over. And they actually provided furniture, too. They had a bunch of furniture left over and said, you know, come and pick out the furniture. And so... Um, it's funny for me, having worked at the newspaper, I'll go in and I see the, we're, you know, we're still using the same chairs that we used to have at the newspaper, um, that kind of thing. Now you mentioned the community newsroom uh, re being resident in the building. Uh, you talk about the storytelling events that they, that they put on. How did the storytelling events connect to journalism? Yes, so we just reached out to the public and said, tell us about your, your community. You know, find different ways to tell us. And so... But people start out, their first, their favorite story, everyone's favorite story, is their own story, right? They like to tell memoir. And so um, that's where people started out with just sharing information about themselves. And we've been challenging them to start telling stories about other people in the community and to tell stories about the community overall. And one of the big developments was during uh, the first year of COVID, the, these, there were 13 different uh, writers who said, okay, we'll take up the challenge. And they wrote a, a diary every day about what was going on in the community. Uh, talking about the, the different things that were happening during COVID. And uh, one of the, the main bloggers, even though it was a story about himself, uh, he wrote about how uh, his wife was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um, she ended up dying uh, you know, after the, the book was finished. Um, but through the process of telling his own story, he was also telling the story of, of his community. And in, it's, gonna, it's, an important, it's an interesting read right now, an important record of what we went through in the pandemic, but I think it's going to be increasingly so you know, 20, 30, 100 years from now for people to look back and say, oh, you know, we do that now with the, the Spanish influenza, right? Like, what was that like? Well, people will look back during this time for COVID and say, you know, what, what was going on? And this is a, a journalistic type resource that tells the story of the community. Now, we talked about some of the community institutions like a diner and other places that, that have uh, sought to pick up the slack a little bit. Uh, how has the community library there uh, contributed to that as well? You know, libraries have emerged as a really important resource for for communities, right? That um, we've sort of always, that's another institution that we take take for granted. The, the library, there's this place where they've got all these books, and you know, in the case of McKeesport, it was an it's an Andrew Carnegie library. You know, Andrew Carnegie left the money for it, and it's just always been part of the community. Um, but as the newspapers have disappeared, and in this case, as the the Daily News disappeared. The library has taken on more importance because it's a place where people gather for information. They turn to the library when they need to know what's happening. Um, you know, when they want to find out something, you go to the library because that's where the information is. And so in this case, the, the McKeesport Library has become a repository for community news where there's, there's a big bulletin board inside the, the front door and people share information on it about what's happening. Um, and so I, I point out one example of what happened uh, when this person who went missing, um, Sam Davis, who was a uh, had been a Steeler, uh, Pittsburgh Steeler, and you know had won several championships, but then um, you know he was old, in older life and had dementia and had been living in a, a home in McKeesport, and he disappeared from the home. And so his nephew is trying to figure out where he is, and he's trying to you know how do how do I get information out quickly about you know what's happened to my uncle and the fact that he's missing and has anybody seen him, and so. He prints out a photo of him and his uncle and takes it to the library and says, hey, can I put this on the door of the library? And they're like, the librarians were like, yeah, we, you know, they had seen Sam. They knew about him. They knew what the story, that who he was. 
And so they said, sure, yeah, put that on the front door. And so uh, it became a way for people to, you know, for this nephew to quickly get, get out information about um, this person who had gone missing. And that's an example of what happens at the library all the time, is that um, when people want to get information, get out information, they turn to the library. And when they want to find out something, that's another place where they turn. We've been talking about the book, Death of the Daily News, How Citizen Gatekeepers Can Save Local Journalism. Andrew Conti, thank you for talking with me. Thanks for having me on. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.